0: This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Bidugul people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land.
1: Merdeka! Merdeka! Merdeka!
0: The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello, and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. This week, you're with me, Dr. Elizabeth Kramer from the University of New South Wales. The basic monthly starting salary for civil servants in Indonesia is just over 2.5 million rupiah, or approximately 260 Australian dollars. In June 2023, the government announced that registrations were now open for the civil servants' basic competency exam and the government would be looking to hire over 1 million new civil servants. So demand is high but wages are not. What does this situation mean for efforts to eradicate corruption and improve productivity in the bureaucracy? Another part of this picture is that not all ministries are created equal. While some have funds to make improvements and implement incentive schemes, some don't. This, my guest today argues, has led to an inequitable application of performance incentives, which could have a range of consequences for Indonesia's bureaucracy. She's talking in particular about the design and implementation of incentives to reform the civil service and how there's a disparity between what is happening in different ministries, which is actually having a collective impact on the psyche of civil servants. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest for today, Dr. Kanti Patiwi from the Department of Management in the Faculty of Economics and Business at Universitas Indonesia. She's also an honorary fellow at the Department of Management and Marketing at the University of Melbourne. Before working for Universitas Indonesia, Kanti was a staff member at the Corruption Eradication Commission, known as the KPK. Welcome to the podcast, Kanti. Thank you so much for for being here with me.
1: Oh, thank you, Liz. Thank you for having me.
0: So, I want to get started with a background question here. I'm interested to know what motivates people to go into the public service these days. You know, since we're talking about motivations and incentives, it'd be really good to um, explain what encourages people to join the public service and what are their expectations of what they'll be doing when they get there.
1: Uh, when we talk about motivation and expectation to join the public sector, and I will focus on those who join as span as Pagoe Negeri Sipil, because you know there are other types of uh, employment. Ada uh, which is more contract-based, and also honorer, and all these other different types of employment. So I'm going to focus on those who join as uh Uh, Obviously, there are several reasons, uh, and this is based on my survey in 2021, which attracted uh, 213 responses. So, number one reason is uh, still job security. So, the number was around 60% of participants uh, who gave this answer. And given the currently precarious job market in Indonesia and also globally, I think we can understand that people really value uh, the idea of being part of the civil service means you get a stability of income, like however small, you you still get paid every month, right? And then you don't get fired so easily like in the private sector. And we know this, that the private sector is notorious for for, uh, just firing people so easily. And second, this is very interesting, Uh, 44% of participants in the survey stated they joined the civil service because they wanted to further their study. So, ah, uh, ingin apa stu yeah. And as a reason, we know that PNS. Uh, if you you are PNS, you have an opportunity to apply for uh, different uh, scholarships. Yeah, for example, uh, Australia Awards offer scholarships prioritizing uh, PNS or those who work in the public sector. So maybe this is uh, another motivation that I think. Um, Needs uh, special attention because uh, this uh, reason strikes me uh, and and because it shows how different is this generation compared to the previous ones. They're the kind of generation that want to develop themselves, want to expand their capacity, and so they believe in furthering their education. And the third and fourth reasons are because they want to fulfill their parents' wishes. Jadi banyak yang they apply because their parents want them to be a uh, PNS. And because they are attracted to the pension scheme, which is also understandable given the majority of other jobs out there uh, don't offer this. Except perhaps if you arrange your own uh, jaminan hari tua, ya, the old age security scheme, which is not very popular at the moment, not many people know about it. So... Uh, Most people in Indonesia, I think if they think about PNS, it comes with uh, the promise of uh, receiving pension uh, scheme other reasons, uh, of course, also include uh, because they want to follow their passion. Yeah, uh, some people who are applying for uh, position uh, as docent, as lecturers, or as teachers. Yeah, and as guru, and as docent, and also some say uh, the degree that they uh, obtain from their undergrad. It's just not suitable for industry types of jobs, so they they just uh, apply for civil service because uh, the positions uh, are more suitable.
0: That's a fantastic recap, and it's really interesting to hear that it's not just about security, but also opportunity that being in the PNS can offer people. I want to turn to a, a different question now, and maybe we might call it the other side of the puzzle or coin here. One of the reasons why bureaucratic reform is is such a topic of conversation in Indonesia, I guess, is because for so many years uh, corruption has been an issue. So before we talk a little bit more about the reforms that have been going on there, I'm interested to hear from you. um, How prevalent would you say corruption is in the public service at the moment in Indonesia? Has it decreased, increased? Um, Can we even tell uh, given the information that's available
1: to us? Okay. um, Yes, I think this is too hard to tell, (laughs) to give you a straight answer, because it would depend on how you would define corruption. And this was really at the heart of my PhD project uh, five years ago now. (laughs) There's always this ambiguity, the floating meaning of corruption, the contextuality, the social meanings, cultural meanings of corruption, in which people, everyday bureaucrats, or even business persons would say, oh, this is not corruption. This is us paying dues to our social obligations as Indonesians, for example. We cannot be successful alone in the middle of an impoverished community, for example. And you know, uh, so many have written about this logic of bagi-bagi, which carries so much cultural meaning, social cultural meanings. And Others would say, um, this is just me being considerate to my staff who need extra money for their kids' education, so they have to look the other way whenever there's uh, quote-unquote corruption. So in my research, uh, one of the most often articulated reasons for the perpetuation of quote-unquote corruption is around the salary inequality between the public and the private sector and within the public sector itself. And this is very different to the kinds of corruption which involves political, corporate elites dodging taxes, for example. There's inequality there too, but but very different. And if you look at what has changed since Indonesia's anti-corruption reform, which started in the late 1990s, early 2000s, there are so many different rules now put in place to minimize budget misappropriation, or uh, kebocoran anggaran, yeah, uh, with all the monitor- monitoring and audit requirement. So I would say on paper, corruption may be decreasing compared to prior to reformasi. But then there's also a shift in the narrative. Uh, we'll, if we look at the media, for example, in the beginning of the reform era, there was a broad consensus that to address corruption, there needs to be an adjustment in public sector salary. Including, uh, I remember there's a statement from World Bank officials. And so some government bodies at that time were able to immediately secure additional allowances. But the same leveling of increase was not applied to other ministries. So their trajectories are different. So perhaps in those ministries or agencies, corruption level has significantly been reduced, but not in others. Especially if we're talking about the regional government with very minimal uh, PAD or pure regional income. You can imagine the take-home pay for their civil servants is much, much lower than other uh, areas like, for example, in Jakarta. So this has created a huge amount of dissatisfaction among sections of the bureaucracy because anti-corruption reform in the form of uh, more strict financial control, such as audit, yeah, it's not accompanied by a comparable increase in income, especially for those outside the financial sector or in uh, areas with very minimal uh, pure regional income. And here you begin to see this metaphor uh, of sultans versus peasants, which I also wrote in my article. Um, So those uh, government institutions or government agencies uh, who are labeled as uh, sultans, they enjoy a significant increase in income whereas the peasants, uh, they don't enjoy a significant increase in income. There is some increase, but not significant, and it doesn't catch up with inflation, for example. And it doesn't guarantee like a decent standard of living. And this has caused problems, I think.
0: That's a great point to interject with my next question, because you've talked about the the sultans and the peasants, and I guess one of the sultans in this um Picture is the Ministry of Finance and people who work at the Ministry of Finance. So I want to turn now to your recent research on using performance bonuses to disincentivize corruption and to boost productivity, which has happened in some parts of the public service. You mentioned that the Ministry of Finance is leading this charge. So can you explain what has happened at the Ministry of Finance? What have they done? and what the rationales have been for these new systems and how they've managed to get the resources to to implement these new systems to try and, as I mentioned, disincentivize corruption and boost productivity.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, this is a great question. So the Ministry of Finance was a pilot project of uh, the Indonesian government uh, in collaboration with the World Bank in the early reform era. And this is very much tied to the neoliberal agenda of the World Bank. I think the financial sector has to be the focus. And there were several government regulations that were passed at that time. And the Ministry of Finance was given full support to reform their institutions. They could even set up a dedicated organizational transformation unit with a separate budget, I believe, something that I don't see in other ministries. So basically, they are provided with the resources to experiment with their own change initiatives, taking stock of what they need as an organization. And I can see this from all the testimonials from senior bureaucrats, from the Ministry of Finance uh, about this initiative. And because they were able to design their own change initiatives supported with the right resources, they were able to transform to in a way that resonates with the aspirations of many members of their organization. Most notably is the aspiration around a better salary package. So there is a collection of stories, (laughs) and this is um, very interesting because um, it's published by the employees of the Ministry of Finance. And in that uh, collection of stories, there were many statements around how happy they were to receive the new salary package this is in early 2000s and they felt that they can finally stop all the questionable practices And it was it was endorsed by the minister the minister uh, herself so it was yeah it was published uh, under the uh, name of uh, dirjen pajak yeah the tax uh, office of the ministry and uh, it was sold um uh, in online bookstore as well so you can easily yeah grab one if you want to and in those collection of stories um they yeah they just basically uh, told uh how they uh no longer have to experience the classic dilemma because then uh their income is so much better you, they don't have to accept bribes anymore like yeah from uh from taxpayers and um they used to be ashamed to um, admit that they work for certain uh, certain institutions, for pajak or biacukai, for example, because of the image, yeah. Uh, uh, people would say, oh, tempatnya basah, gitu ya. Yeah? And they were so ashamed of it. But now they are proud because their income is halal. It doesn't come from all these questionable uh, sources anymore. And they were so glad because all the rumors they heard about the new salary package, which is called... Uh, Tunjangan kinerjaya, performance allowance, finally came true. And that this will give them a sense of security. So the, it started with a the rumor. They were promised that they will receive this um, huge increase, right? But then uh, they, they've been waiting and waiting for uh, several months, I think. And at the end of it, uh, they finally received it and they were so happy. And there were resistance, of course. There are other um, members of the Ministry of Finance, I think, who are resistant to change. Uh, They were able to finally get most of of the employees on board. And this is mainly due to their ability to secure a better performance allowance at the level that satisfy uh, most of their members. This is the amount that exceeds other ministries or agencies at that time. And Uh, mostly until now eh? because they already started uh, early uh, with uh, their uh, performance allowance increase. So no other ministries could catch up actually with their levels of income at the moment.
0: So it sounds like the people who work at the Ministry of Finance had had quite a good outcome out of all of this and were very happy. But you also write about how, most ministries have not followed in the footsteps of the Ministry of Finance in offering performance-based incentives for their employees. So why is it that some of the other ministries haven't, haven't chosen to or haven't been able to follow the lead of the Ministry of Finance?
1: Okay, um, so as I said earlier, uh, the Ministry of Finance was part of a, the reform that they uh, undertook was part of a pilot project. Uh, endorsed uh, sponsored by the World Bank so there goes their privilege Uh, other institutions did not receive the same kind of support and resources so what happens in the majority of government ministries or agencies is that they are to follow a predetermined standardized formula for reform Much of it comes in the form of an index called the Index for Bureaucracy Reform, managed by the Ministry of Administrative and Bureaucracy Reform. And in it, there is no bottom-up process. So it's very different to what's happened in the Ministry of Finance. It's all about filling out forms, ticking the box exercise, very formal, and often does not reflect what's happening on the ground. So there is a decoupling between the formal, what is on paper, and the everyday. So they ask, for example, to um, the ministries or the agencies to create some uh, standard operating procedure, SOP, Uh, which is a good initiative, but then whether the SOP is actually put to use is a different story. right? And the reason why it's decoupled, unlike what's happened in the Ministry of Finance, is somehow tied to this issue of income, to the issue of remuneration, to the issue of low salary. So the Ministry of Administrative and Bureaucracy Reform is the one to decide on the formula. They evaluate the level of progress of other ministries and agencies. And there was a case where three government bodies actually met all the conditions to receive an increase in their allowance, but the approval still comes from the Ministry of Finance. And Ministry of Finance is so powerful in this case, they could veto the decision of the administrative ministry and just scrap the proposal to increase the performance allowance of other ministries on the grounds of unfavorable economic condition, all the while still handing out bonuses to their own employees. So this is one of the things that I see from All the conversations, all the interviews I had with uh, my informants um, with everyday bureaucrats, they believe that they have met all these requirements, all these conditions on paper from the Ministry of Administrative uh, and Bureaucracy Reform, but then nothing happens. They they still cannot enjoy the same level of uh, performance uh, allowance like... uh, their colleagues at the Ministry of Finance. So going back to your question, is it ideological or is it practical? I think it's simply because um, they were not equipped with the same resources as the Ministry of Finance. And somehow there's a conflict of interest here as well because Ministry of Finance, because they manage the budget, they can approve who receive and who don't receive this increase in performance allowance. And most of the times, Um, Yeah, many other ministries, agencies, they get rejected in their proposals, right? Whereas uh, people also know um, the employees at Ministry of Finance, they keep receiving all these bonuses every year for achieving their targets.
0: That must be incredibly frustrating for people in other ministries, especially if they have met all the requirements and it's just a matter of being signed off by someone in the ministry of finance and it gets rejected yeah, absolutely I can imagine yeah. so that that kind of brings me to my next question actually because you a lot of the research that you do is interview based um and in your most recent project you did speak to quite a few civil servants directly about their experiences i'm interested you know when you were talking to people was there anything that particularly struck you during your interviews. I'm interested to hear if there were any reflections from your interviewees that really highlight how problematic the nature of these bureaucratic reforms uh, has been.
1: I think uh, one of the most striking is of course, the stories shared by uh, the Ministry of Finance employee uh, about how the new salary package have changed their view about their job a sense of security, sense of being appreciated, no longer have to worry about living expenses, education for their children. And this, I believe, translates into better work ethic. And we can see how the public in general really uh, give a thumbs up for their online tax system, for their frontline services, which is very different when you compare to uh, stories or testimonials. We heard about services in the district office, for example, Kelurahan, or in Puskesmas. Where the workers are mostly underpaid and overworked, so I think this big narrative about uh, corruption being a problem of morality—you know—it's it's being challenged at the same time by these stories because at the end of the day, it's it's not about morality; it's about inequality as well. Like how much you make, it will influence, it will shape your everyday behavior. And this is confirmed uh, with the document analysis in which I found that senior civil servants actually lobbied the House of Representatives, uh, so senior civil servants at the Ministry of Finance. They actually lobbied the House of Representatives at the early uh, uh, reform era. Uh, they lobbied to secure a new salary package. And that was quite a revealing uh, quotation uh, there in the article that I published uh, in the conversation recently. Because this really shows that at the end of the day, whether your institution can get uh, a better remuneration package or uh, um, uh, performance incentive, it, it's not about meeting all these requirements on paper, uh, et etc. et cetera. It's more about whether the minister or, or uh, someone senior in your uh, institution can lobby the House of Representatives. And this is so frustrating as well at the same time, you know. Um, And while stories from other government agencies really uh, focus on this frustration because they have to do all these tick-the-box exercise to meet the bureaucracy reform index that is so detached from what everyday civil servants need to improve their performance on the job, their frustration because of the budget cut or sometimes we call it uh, refocusing, yeah? if you have heard of, of this term, and also automatic adjustment. All these uh, mechanisms eat into the budget for honorarium and allocation for business trips. While the promise increase in performance allowance is still remain to be seen. So you can see uh, they're being under pressure from left and right, right? You want them to um, improve uh, their performance you want them to stop engaging in corruption or bribery but then you also remove all these additional source of income um, while not giving these civil servants the promised level of increase in performance allowance
0: and also i guess you know like i mentioned before it's it's not between sectors it's actually p- People who are, yeah, you know, some of them are, are better yeah, but they're seeing people who are ostensibly maybe the same level as them or with the same sort of workload as them being paid much more, and that leads me to my final question, actually. So, what are the other unintended consequences of this? entire situation that you've presented to us and these reforms in some parts of government and not in other parts of government. Um, you talk in your article a little bit about the phenomenon of quiet quitting, which you know has sort of entered into the employment discourse over the last couple of years. So this phenomenon of quiet quitting amongst Indonesian civil servants, and perhaps there are some other unintended consequences as well. Can you tell us what you found through your research?
1: Okay, quiet quitting. (laughs) So this is something that I learned from being part of the civil servant Twitter community for about two years now, I think, and observing online interactions, contributing to their conversations as well, uh, and not doing uh, my writing. (laughs) A little bit of escapism there. (laughs) There is this idea uh, that I learned from them called membego dalam damai. So playing stupid peacefully. So basically what what this means is that these younger generations of PMS, yeah, when they say dalam damai, they're trying to say that they no longer want to show their true skills and knowledge to their superiors, which they uh, humorously label as esmelon. As esmelon yeah? is is actually for eselon, uh, yeah? yeah? people who <laughs> Uh, occupy uh, a higher position in the organization. So they call them Esmelon. They know if they show their true skills and their knowledge, uh, whatever, they will be handed in extra work with no extra money. And they already feel underpaid. So why would they want to go the extra mile? Because you keep hearing this, oh, you have to go extra mile, etc., etc. Why would they want to work quote-unquote, professionally. I think, more importantly, if the government is not addressing this seriously, these younger generations are going to become even more skeptical. And this, in the end, would hurt the overall goal of reform and the interests of the public. The public sector is an integral part of it, I think, to deliver uh, keadilan sosial. So, yeah, quiet quitting is something that I'm really worried uh, if if we keep ignoring all these voice of uh, dissatisfaction and feeling of uh, demoralization, we really need to address this uh, seriously.
0: Yes, I mean it sounds like the danger is that these reforms could have. Some ministries and and some employees going in the opposite direction, <laughs> they're meant to boost productivity, yes. but what they're actually doing is demoralizing some people within the s, mm-hmm. which is obviously going to have the opposite effect of of what's intended yes, yeah yes. It, it sounds like a really massive issue, and it it was so interesting to read your research on this particular issue, and I now know what s melon means um which is. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something I will no doubt throw into oh, conversations.
1: You have to know umbi, umbian as well. So umbi, umbian is the opposite of uh-huh. esmellon. Umbi is uh, the term uh, they reserve for themselves. Umbi is, you know, uh, umbi kan tanaman yang ada di bawah tanah, kan? They're actually um, the ones doing all the hard work, but no one will see them because they're underground. But all the the all what matters in the bureaucracy is actually them this umbi umbian. So I'm also an umbi umbian, but uh, I work <laughs> at Universitas, so <laughs> a different type of umbi umbian, but still umbi umbian. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so there is a way of crafting their identity and differentiate themselves from the asmalon. I think it's a clever way to mobilize a different kind of narrative about being civil servant uh, at this uh, era of. Uh, neoliberalization, and also uh, a way to sometime in the future, they could also mobilize as a union, you know, because we know in Australia and also in other countries like in the UK, public servants are strongly unionized, I think. And this gives them uh, a certain level of bargaining position as well. That's another topic for another Yeah, day. I think
0: so. we are definitely going to have to invite you back so you can talk more about some of these developments into the future. But Kanti, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and learn more about these issues which are, you know, really cross-cutting and will have a huge impact on Indonesia's development and progress into the future. So, yes, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Liz. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. So
0: that's all we have time for today. But if you enjoyed this podcast, please do consider liking or subscribing to Talking Indonesia on your chosen podcast platform, such as SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Our next Talking Indonesia episode will be brought to you by my co-host Tito Ambior. See you then. Bye.